0: I did some research at British Business Bank, and it said that um, something like 0.2% of institutional money goes to people from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds. And I, I was this person, basically. I'm doing a 100-meter race, yeah. and I'm looking down my lane, and my, my uh, people I'm running against, they're all the same physique, same training, we've all got a fair chance, a fair shot. Suddenly, I look down my lane, and they're putting out hurdles. I know there's hurdles, yeah. I can deal with that. I know what yeah. they are. Let's do this. Yeah. Then they say to me, excuse me, Mr. Lenny, could you start 20 meters back? So then the gun goes, I start running, I'm clearing the hurdles, and then I realize there's flipping invisible hurdles yeah. and I'm smacking my shins on. And yeah. that's the race that you're running. And that shouldn't be the case. Right. That's the same if you're a white working class lad, like, right? He's raising this kind yeah. of money. So that, that has to change.
1: Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you wanna hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Piers Linney is best known as a dragon from the long-running BBC series Dragon's Den, which returned to our screens last week. He's a boy done good who's gone from paper rounds to billion-pound businesses via investment, banking and the dot-com boom. I spoke to Piers over Zoom about his early entrepreneurial spirit, his journey through the many aspects of business and how race and class are still obstacles to success for minorities and the working class. This is the eventful life of Mr. Piers Linney. Hey, Piers, welcome to the show, mate.
0: Hi, Dodge, good morning.
1: Good morning to you. Whereabouts are you in the world at the minute?
0: I'm currently up in the, the Northwest, nearest civilization is probably sort of Preston, but well, quite Preston. in the country, actually, in my partner's place.
1: Oh, lovely, lovely. Well, let's get cracky and let's go, let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you get into business?
0: So I, I grew up in, um, well, I was born in Stoke-on-Trent. So my mum was a, a real Windrush um, nurse, came over to work for the NHS. And she came to work at North Staffs, so Stoke-on-Trent. Met my dad there, who worked in the uh, ceramics. There's a potteries, basically, in the ceramics industry. And then when I was, not, and I'm a, a Stoke-on-Trent. I don't remember not the ones. Really fond times. It was a difficult times. is the 70s. I know I don't look that old, but it's the 70s is a bit, a bit tricky there about sort of racism. I, I remember it quite well. Then we moved. My dad got, got a job in Manchester, and we moved up to the. <laughs> what my parents thought was a, a nice sunny mill town up in the hills in in Lancashire. And my mum became the local health visitor, which is quite interesting, because she's a black woman in a mill town. And I, I basically grew my formative years, I would say, were in a place called Bake Up, which is a really small mill town in the in Lancashire, in a place called Rosendale. So you think of Berry, Burnley, Bolton, Rochdale, yep. Yep. it's kind of in the middle of, of, of those sort of Smaller town. I spent my summers um, in Barbados on Accra Beach. So, oh, lovely. We'd, we'd kind of go out to Barbados and then you know, I'd get dropped off on the beach and, and it's at the nine in the morning with my brother. And the people there would kind of look after us. And then a member of the family, we never quite knew whom, would pick us up <laughs> sort of when the sun was going down and take us back to there. So, I, I kind of spent my, you know, six weeks of my summers, not every year, but quite yeah. a few years um, on Accra Beach. And it's quite funny, I went back there last year actually. We took my took my daughters there. Amazing! And it was just fantastic sitting on Accra Beach with my daughters.
1: Bring back all the memories. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoy Accra Beach. So, what's um? So, what was your next steps? What was it like in the seventies being mixed race uh, living up north?
0: So, Bake Up is um. So Bake Up is a. Essentially, I'm a bit of a historian. So, I grew up amongst the you know the old. I used to play amongst the footings, of what I now know well, you know, water mills. Bacon essentially was the end of the line. So when the when the navy when the Navvies built the railways and they came up the valley, it's called the Valley up to Bacup. There's a big hill over to Yorkshire, and they weren't building a railway over that or through it. So they kind of stopped, put down their picks and shovels, and uh, a lot of the families are still there today. It's quite interesting, actually. Wow. You know, I won't mention the names, but they're all sort of um I have a lot of Irish sounding names. And my mum was a local health visitor, so not particularly related to. And all those families, just the nature of the area. It was quite yeah. it was quite a poor area, um, yeah. lots of issues. And my mum saw them firsthand. So I grew up in a place where you know, I I mean I'll just tell you, so I, I'd walk, you know, it sounds it sounds bad, but yeah. over, this is over a period of many years. But yeah. situations where police escorts home. Um, I you know, I, I remember distinctly walking down the road, my probably about what, 11 years old 12 years old and someone and a, a father would cross the road with his son and say you black bastard get back to your own country casually cross over again and carry on with his day yeah I'm thinking oh my god I don't yeah. think think that then but yeah. I thought well, now I think well what chances has his son got and I, I became quite handy so I went to the local judo club um I, I could look after myself my brother I also found my 11 plus, I was a bit, so I was quite bright, but just a bit complacent, ended yeah. up going to the the high school, comprehensive, whatever it is, and that was, that was pretty tricky as well, so there's what, 2,500 kids there then, there's a lot fewer now, the school continues to struggle to this day, and I was the only, the only black guy in the village, quite literally, Right. And Bangladeshi um, friends, and not many, um, but that was kind of it, so <sighs> I had a target on my back. Yeah. I had to sort of um, be quite willing to, if it came down to it, fight back or, uh, you know, join them down at
1: the park. And what, what was it like for you? Were you thinking, right, the next step for me is to get into business or to follow the sport route? What 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 really spurred you on? Um, I wasn't really that structured. <laughs> yeah.
0: I so I was quite good at um, sport, um, not football. Um, yeah. I played rugby. I was captain of Australia, um Rugby Union, which before yeah. it was sort of as big as it is now. Yeah back in the day when I was sort of 16. Um, but I was always interested in business. So yeah. I always tell the story. And, and I know everyone's got this sort of a, a, a origin story, every entrepreneur, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it is true. So I, I, my dad, I used to do a paper round, right? And when I did paper rounds in Lancashire in the 80s, when it snowed, it covered your car. And I did this paper round five days, it was six days a week, Saturdays as well. And it's a five pounds, right? And if I was late, I got four fifty, Yeah. and when, when it was, and I thought this is a mug's game, man. And then one day, one Sunday, they didn't deliver the papers. You had to get out of bed, get down to the news agent, and get them yourself. And my dad said, you know, can you can you get my paper for me? So I got on my bike and trotted down to the news agent, bought it, bought it back, and it gave me like fifty p. I can't remember the exact number. Yeah. Well, you know, when I did the maths, I was like, well, hang on a minute. So the next door neighbour sort of said, um, could you do it for me? Anyway, so you can see where this is going. Yeah. I kind of then. Um, I sort of spoke to a lot of the neighbours and put together a paper round. And then the the news agent wasn't interested in working with me because that was competition. So I actually bought the newspapers direct from the wholesaler. So the wholesaler would drop a bundle you know, you see the films on a sidewalk in New York. It's like that. So they dropped one at the news agent and one outside my parents' house on the doorstep. And I'd put them all together and do this round. And I'd make 20 quid Mm. on a Sunday morning. Mm. And then I got my sort of Christmas bonus. People give me some tips. I've got another 200. So you can see... And, yeah. and that taught me a lot. It taught me about, you know, obviously I wasn't thinking this at the time, but you look back, reflect yeah. on it, and I learned about um, customers, you know, finding a niche, finding yep. a way of you know supplying that niche, talking about pricing. Yeah. I mean, the prices were kind of fixed and the way your margin was fixed by the, the news. But I disintermediated the uh, the media barons at the, yeah. at the ripe age of thirteen, essentially. Yeah. And I did that until it, until it became uncool to have a paper round. And yeah. then I started delivering things like, you know, betterware and door-to-door sales. So whether I was 13 doing papers, whether I was a bit older, doing door-to-door sort of, you know, selling pots and pans, basically. whether I was doing mailables, I was selling that kind, of, that kind of perfume that smells a little bit like the, the perfume you, you usually buy, but it's about a third of the price. And uh, that funded a, a holiday to Barbados, actually. So I made a few thousand pounds out of that. Yeah. University, I was doing a party. It's not quite the scale that... You do them, but I was doing that kind of, I was all into swing, New Jack swing and doing parties before dance. This was the tail end of the hacienda.
1: Yeah, lovely. And then in Manchester.
0: Yeah, I was in Manchester University. I did a four-year degree, law and accounting. And then when I was at law school, I was doing company formations. When I was a training solicitor, I was doing film finance. My friend went on to run Lionsgate Europe. So I was always, I was always doing, and now they call it a side hustle, right? I don't like the word hustle, but I was always doing something. And that's how I yeah. got interested in business, because I realized that if you can deliver a service well and you work hard, you can make some money. And that money meant I could do things that I otherwise would not have been able to do.
1: Yeah. So did you always want to be an entrepreneur or did you actually get employed from when you finished university?
0: Um, I always wanted to be into biz- in business. So yeah. <laughs> it's quite interesting when I was growing up. So so where I grew up, um, I grew up on the sort of the nice, all of the nice estates, you know, So and our neighbors, even to this day, my, mom, my, my dad passed away sadly in um, the end of last year, and my mom's still there. And our neighbors are, you know, you had the, Eddie the, the Bricky, yeah. Graham around the Quarry, yeah. Derek, and these people are still around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Derek, who had a, um, a joinery business. So they, they were kind of in business, but they'd be quite sort of um, you know, manual, essentially, or they'd be trades. So I was surrounded by those people, and I wanted to be in business. And the advice that I got was become an accountant well that, that was kind of it i <laughs> thought really so i actually then started looking at doing accounting degrees i had to do my a-levels twice which is a story of my life when it comes yeah. to exams and i did law because i like history and law was quite similar yeah. and through law i said sort of i fell in love with law that sounds a bit cheesy but i did yeah. really did i loved it and uh, i thought oh i could do a law degree So, I thought, but i've got to go into business so i need to do accounting so i actually did yeah. like, a four year accounting and law degree um wow. so that, I was always aware that it was something that interested me. I was always fascinated with entrepreneurs, the UK ones, you know, the great US entrepreneurs of the age, the Rockefellers, mm-hmm. the J.P. Mm-hmm. Morgans, yeah. and uh, that fascinated me. But it wasn't mm-hmm. really, and like I said, it was at a side hustle, and, that, and that's what that's what my passion was really. But I did yeah. uh, become a people don't know this about me. I did become a qualified lawyer, so I'm a venture capital lawyer by training, and then. I qualified and then became an investment banker in the city. So I went from this Lancashire mill town comprehensive to working at, you know, Credit Suisse first Boston. And by by my mid twenties, I was earning a quarter of a million quid a year.
1: Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. So you've gone to, from university, going into the city, earning a quarter of a million pound a year. Were you happy? Well, no, because I haven't earned that much money since.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not in terms of income. I'm I'm not even joking. No, no, no. When
1: you're in business, you don't pay yourself a quarter million quid, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you find yourself when you were in the city, going in the city every day, wearing a suit, having these meetings? Did you love that? Did you? I
0: loved it. It was like, oh, wow. It was like someone gave me a Willy Wonka
1: ticket.
0: And I was, I wasn't some like, kid that went to flipping oxbridge and they did the yeah. harvard summer school and daddy runs this country and money's yeah. princess this yeah and these are people i actually work with i'm gonna make yeah. these profiles up yeah i i had a willy wonka ticket and i was gonna flipping run with it and uh-huh. i had the suits i had the braces you- <laughs> I, I i worked literally because i knew so what happened to me was i i really struggled to get into law yeah i applied to 68 different um Um, law firm some of them twice to be honest but over two years 68 law firms. one sj berwin god for sj berwin gave me a chance that's basically because in the meeting i I know the guy today from the meeting i basically said give me a chance if i'm rubbish fire me yeah and i think they just thought i'm gonna give this guy a chance and it was sink or swim so i got in there and i worked really hard and then i really struggled to get into banking so a friend of mine who Actually, still in touch with his brother. Actually, because I started at my first dot com with him. He, I was. I don't want to be a lawyer long term because I, I was in a venture capital law firm. So you can you imagine? You know, little or me. Yeah. I'm a little Sue. I'm yeah. seeing. This is before tech, by the way. Yeah. I'm seeing what year are
1: we talk. What year are we talking? This year? is '95 now. I okay. Finished
0: university '94, '95. I'm um, a law school. So yep. like yeah. Year, but two year basically. Mid
1: twenties.
0: Yeah. So I'm now yeah. looking at these people. I've got the investors and the entrepreneurs, and I'm looking and thinking, well, am on going to I want to be one of them not yeah. not the person who's writing up what they're talking about no yeah. thank you yeah and i was talking to my friend who i met at law school but quite he's quite a wealthy um guy from a german background and he said well, you should become a banker i said what do you mean i was thinking about barclays
1: yeah, you know, an yeah investment yeah.
0: banker and i thought yeah. oh, right, okay so i actually bought a book I don't, I don't think i've still got it called investment banking and i read it i thought oh, that's quite interesting and i thought i'll read that i'll read that pink newspaper the financial Times. right i want to do that now yeah. so whenever I've kind of set my sights on something, I've kind of just all, all it's like all lasers are focused yeah. on one thing. Yeah. Um, it's like the Death Star yeah. <laughs> like laser. And I'd be like, right, I'm doing this. So I then started applying to all these uh, banks. I didn't even get a look in, half of them didn't respond. My yeah. friend then, it's a guy, he got a yeah. job at Credit Suisse on the grad training program as a second year, it's a three year program. we were yeah. like, whoa, you're missing out a whole year of the grad yeah. program. And you know, you read the stories, the grad program in these banks at the time is yeah. you were literally chained to a desk and yeah. you, you didn't leave. You know, it was seven days a week, 18 hours a day. You, they killed you. Yeah. The wheels moved on yeah. there because of mental health and that kind of thing. And yeah. um, I was like, oh, so I didn't, I didn't get a look at him. So Credit Suisse, one line letter about, you know, get lost. I thought, oh my God. So I met some headhunter recruitment guy. and He helped me sort of uh, PR it and ended up getting a job with um, what's now Barclays Capital. It was called Barclays de Jute then. Uh, and I got in September, 1997 this is. And then in December, Barclays announced they're selling the investment banking business. <laughs> and I thought, I've like clambered up this mountain. managed yeah. to You know, I've, I've got no nails left. I've <laughs> clambered over to the top of it. And then they've kind of pulled the rug. Yeah, thought, yeah. Anyway, it turns out, I get invited to a meeting by my bosses, who I still know to this day as well. And then they said, so we'll have to talk to you. And I thought, here we go. Last in, first out. And he goes, look, yeah. you've worked really hard. It's, it's obvious you want to do this. You're good at it. We, I know you're worried. We want to make sure you feel comfortable. We're going to support you through this process. Here's 10 grand. And I was like, I thought I was getting fired. I remember <laughs> ringing my mum. I think I was putting my mum's phone to my mum in tears. And I, I think I sent her half of it. Anyway, so a long story short, ended up um, being acquired. I went to Credit Suisse, and that was a big, invest- big U.S. investment bank. Yeah, totally different culture. B 2 W was long, long, you know, boozy lunches. Credit Suisse wasn't dry ship. Work, work, work. You know, yeah. people used to fly over on planes for meetings, and they'd arrive yeah. with a an eight-hour dictated note that they'd done yeah. on the flight. You know? yeah. It was bonkers the work culture. And that's kind of that's kind of been left in me that, that work ethic. And I um ended up at Credit Suisse anyway where I'm getting to the story is, I arrive at Credit Suisse, they can't map me because the, 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 job, the job sort of levels are different. Yeah. So I get mapped up. So now I'm earning, I don't know, basics like probably 80. Yeah. I'm probably earning a first year 150 or something like
1: that.
0: Yeah. I'm now a second year associate, right? This is a year later, my friend, the guy that was always gonna get a job in the investment bank, now he, I'm his boss.
1: Uh, quality.
0: He, he left. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I ended up two years. So that was sink or swim. And that's where, going back to your question, I, I put my flipping stripy suit on. I bought the braces. I wore my pink shirt on Fridays. <laughs> I, I, worked, I worked seven days a week and probably got to the office at half eight, left on a good day at midnight. I'd do one all nighter um, every two weeks. My worst stint was on a white night, a white night's wear there's a hostile takeover and you try and find a more friendly company to take over your client rather than this hostile takeover you're gonna probably tear the company to pieces and I got to work at Wednesday 8 30 in the morning and I left my desk I gesture not in the same underpants I think I bought a new shirt at 6 30 on Friday got home (laughs) fell on my bed like that and I woke (laughs) up in the same position 19 hours later yeah. And do you find, but I loved it. I got up and thought, yes, let's do it yeah. again. Let's, let's yeah. roll the
1: dice. I love this piece because that is so far from what I am about. And I love to hear your passion talking about, it. you actually love going into the city. You love getting on the tube. You love getting dressed up. You love well, the I think
0: whole. If you know London, this was actually pre Jubilee line. So I was quite lucky that I bought my first flipping BMW Z3 on a debit card, literally. And I got, <laughs> I got to drive in and park my car. I got, to, I, I remember I used to drive home at two in the morning normally in the streets yeah. of London. There was no car. No one ever, that's lovely, isn't it? I had my roof down. <laughs> I, I loved it. But the point came when the dot-com um, boom came along, that was like a gold rush. And if you look at the, you look at the original dot-com boom, actually, a lot of the people that got involved, hashtag got involved, were wealthy, management yeah. consultants, yeah. investment bankers, because yeah. they could afford to take a year out and give it a pop. Yeah. And I was kind of one of those people where, I thought well what I can do is take you I've got a bonus I can take a year or two out give it a go and if it goes wrong I can always come back yeah And of course as I left the city
1: into the dot-com boom this is now beginning of 2000, 2000. so just just just, just hold me just hold me there uh, Piers you were working up until 2000 do you see a niche in the market to go for something in this dot-com boom dot-com boom and what was it?
0: Well, at that point, it was a bit different. It was a bit, it was a bit similar now. It was kind of like, right, there's an opportunity. There's a systemic change in the way people are going to access data, purchasing. Obviously, it took a lot longer than we thought it was going to. So, you know, things didn't, a lot of things didn't work out. It wasn't. It was a particular niche. It was that right. We've got to find. We've got to find a business that, a digital business, basically a .com. Let's start one. Yeah, yeah. And I was looking at that, and that's when I thought, well, actually, this city stuff is all very well and good. But and I stepped out of a very well paid job um, to, to earn nothing, yeah. and the point is, is that people that could do that. And my my issue was that why I'm still here today is when I stepped out very soon after the dot com crash. So yeah, I had wrong. my bridge back to the city.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> that was now just a, a, you know a pile of charred remains. That yeah, my bridge had been well and truly burnt. So yeah. I had no way back. So then it was just looking forward. So my. The guy I mentioned from law school, I met his brother, who was a surgeon with an MBA. Yeah. We ended up doing a dot-com in healthcare.
1: Ah, okay. Okay. And what
0: year was this? This is now This is now literally two months before the dot-com crash. That was interesting as well. Oh. Sorry, we saw a whole economic cycle
1: in 18 months. Yeah. So just for the listeners out there, the dot-com boom was when websites came about.
0: Yeah, this is 90s. So in, in the US, it was earliest. And in the US, it was like, you know, mid '90s up until 2000 in the in yeah. the UK, the the kind of starting gun for our dot com boom really was the the iPure, probably a free serve, which is one of the ISPs, which was yeah. ended up being purchased by Dixons. And yeah. if you've a certain age, you have no idea what a dial up yeah. internet service <laughs> provider ISP well, one of those even is.
1: But Took a long time. Yeah.
0: So that was that was the kind of the the kind of starting gun really for the the UK boom. But we got into it here reasonably late. So that's when. Companies like, you know, lastminute.com. That was yeah. the big success right. story at the time, you know, Brent and Martha. That was the big, one of the big sort of success stories. But even then, they kind of raised a lot of cash. There was a dot-com crash, but they had the money. So yeah. they could build a business. And actually, they acquired lots of businesses and yeah. built a business around that. Yeah. So it was a bad time. But again, in, in business, you the, the 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 difficult periods where you you always take something away from you, you learn something. That's I was true. lucky yeah. that my business partner's family could... Um, take the business on and I, I left.
1: Yeah, and then so I went we'll into be-
0: dance music, which we can move on to. Is that to- what we
1: went into, was it? What year was yeah. this? Just the
0: DJ, remember that? Here we go. Well, so literally, it was a crazy time there because we started this .com and in those days, no one really knew who you were. You could be the next, you know, Amazon. Amazon yeah. already then had got some traction. Yeah. So we'd get flown to like Austin, Texas by some big healthcare company to talk to us about the UK marketing strategy. We were just a couple of people sat yeah. in a rented office. yeah, And uh, it was just nuts because yeah. it, it was a crazy time, but it was quite fun actually. So I kind of came out of that. And I was literally, its happened a few times in my life, sat at home at my dinner table with my phone, which was a bit bigger than they are now, yeah. and literally a Rolodex. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, right, okay, well, this, that didn't work out. So what do I do now? I couldn't go back to the city because my bridge had been burned by dot .com crash. They weren't exactly hiring. yeah. So then I started thinking, okay, how do I make some money? And that's when I started hustling. And then I got a phone call from someone. And this is, this is why networks are always important, is that, yeah. you know, you meet people, you network, you get to know them. And people I knew from the bank who, not closely, I just, you know, spent time with them and talked to them and networked. And they knew I like dance music and, you know, like, I like going to a Ibiza and that kind of thing. And they said, oh, we've got a business where we're going to um, aggregate all the digital content from the world's leading DJs and we're going to own their rights and we're going to use their own knowledge to this is unbelievable right this is going to sound like we invented the wheel and the, <laughs> and the stone like, the custom burn cds this is pre yeah. itunes right it's yeah, amazing, okay, isn't yeah. It? it's amazing we were like yeah and we're going to get their track listings these leading djs and we're going to custom burn cds so anyway so that didn't happen because um, the, the world moved very very quickly and that's yeah. when things like Shazam just started. I remember meeting yeah. the Shazam founder, saying, Yeah, we've got this software. And we're going to try and do this? And uh, we ended up being a record label called Trust the DJ. So we ended up spinning that out. It's called the radio department today. And I'm still a shell doing that. And we still make, we're still the largest uh, producer of DJ syndicated radio shows around the world. So, but Trust the DJ, it was, it was a broken model. We found out very quickly because <laughs> the
1: investors, you put about four million quid in. Realized, hold on, hold on. So, what the investors put four million quid into? Yeah, trust yeah,
0: the DJ. Is like, this was like American money, and I think some money from sort of Virgin. And they put this money, in and I got there, and they wanted me to design a business model. They kind of had the money and the idea. Yeah. I hadn't really got to go to market, and I looked at it and said, "Well, you've got a bit of an issue." And they're like, well, "What's that?" I said, "Well, the DJs don't actually own the rights. They're not bands. They're just playing yeah. other people's content." Yeah, yeah. You no. Know? So if you want to, if you want to custom burn or make any kind of music have to go and clear it all and pay them Oh, right, okay so there's no ip really so anyway we so yeah. ended up doing a, a record label we did um it's amazing stuff actually Fair to the founders and um you know and and one of the founders lynn but we know lynn cosgrave still manages mm-hmm. or did manage carl cox people like that yeah. John Digley,
1: yeah, until yeah quite no.
0: recently that was lynn so yeah. yeah and djs as you know they are an utter pain in the proverbial. We would sit in meetings. <laughs> It'd be me. would be the ex-head of uh, BBC Radio One. He was our chairman, Matthew Bannister. And we sit in these meetings. And like, and I won't mention the DJs' names because you probably know them. They'd be like, "Well, where are they? They're coming in to go through their track listing and talk about the next, the next sort of deal and record and PR." They'd be like, "Oh no, we can't get hold of them, but I'm sure they're on the way." An hour later, you get hold of them, and they go, oh, "Yeah, I'll just take the call." You go, "Okay, come, come back in. Where are they? When are they going to be here?" We're sat in West London. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've just woken up. They're in Miami. That's typical <laughs> I mean, DJs just for you. Like that. Like... <laughs> and I was like, right, I'll do the business. Yeah. You do the DJ. Yeah. <laughs> I can't deal with it, man. I came from Credit Suisse where yeah. we were a minute late for a meeting, Yeah, you locked done. the flipping door.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So oh, uh, so anyway, so.
1: Did you enjoy that period? Uh, yeah, I,
0: I loved it, actually. Yeah. Um, I didn't own, didn't own big shares in that, so that was a bit of frustration. Yeah. yeah. And that became an issue in the end. And we raised some more money and I stepped away because couldn't afford it, didn't need me, and we downsized yeah. it. Um, and then eventually, um, that didn't work out. That didn't work out. So I, I ended up buying out the the domain and the marketing business yeah. and the uh, the radio business, which I'm still involved in today. Yeah. The marketing business, the guys went on with that and um, I'm sure what they did with it. But it became, so, a, more, it became more of a lifestyle business.
1: Yeah. Okay. Just, a, just picking up on a point there. You're saying you raise more capital. That's so far from my world. But I see so many young entrepreneurs these days always talking about raising capital before they even have got a business up and running.
0: So I, I came from the venture capital background. Yeah. So when I, when I was sort of coming up in venture capital law, the usual deal was a management buyout. So this was somebody or a team that run a business. Well, they could see a business that they can yeah. look better. Yeah. They go and get institutional backing to go and buy it. But these were businesses with cash flows, profits normally, they could put some debt in and they could leverage the deal, a bit of financial yeah. engineering. Then the dot-com boom came along where you know you could have a mad idea and raise a couple of million quid yeah. of throwing money at it. Yeah. And you know, and there's there's a place for that because you know technology, obviously there's no profits, there's no revenue. You've got to build something yeah. before you can generate the revenue. Yeah. So and the issue was, was that a lot of the people got stung after the dot-com crash. And yeah. a lot of the funds, a lot of the money that was in the UK and Europe kind of disappeared or retrenched back to the US. Yeah. They stayed there for probably nearly 20 years. Mm. It's only the last sort of 5, 10 years probably. You've seen, you know, people reinvest reinvesting here um, in sort of tech um, at, at that kind of level. And you're right, you know, you can have an idea and go and raise several million pounds. But that's the that's the risk reward. This it's a different ball game. Yeah. Now you're talking about software, where if you get it right, you have a, an almost never infinite but huge audiences. Yeah. yeah. And if you if you really do connect with those customers, you've got a huge margin. You know, ninety percent on software as a service. Yes. Yeah. You might need to burn three hundred million dollars, mm. like some of the neobanks have, to get there. Yeah. But eventually there's a tipping point and your costs, your costs and your revenue kicks off. You look absolutely. at the ones that are profitable, the Facebooks, you know, yeah. they, they absolutely print money. That's a
1: unicorn business though, isn't it?
0: Well, unicorns, yeah, in the UK it's a billion, it's a billion. Yeah. And, and we've got quite a few of them here, but, and, and there's a long way to go. People think, yeah. that, oh, have I missed the boat? And, and there's more and more money coming into the market. Yeah. In the, I'm on the board of the government bank in the UK, British Business Bank, so... We went, just to give you an idea, we went from about 8 billion of facilitated finance into UK small businesses to 90 billion bounce back loans, coronavirus business, right? Okay. Loan scheme, future fund.
1: What's your role within that?
0: I'm well, I'm on the board, I was non exec, so I don't claim any, uh, I don't claim for doing any of the hard work. The team mm. did that, and it was a huge mm. amount of work and an amazing, committed team there, very mission driven. But it is owned by the government, and, and I was on the board, so. That was fascinating to see. But the point I was getting to is that there's more and more money available now. And yeah. the, the angels in the UK use schemes like the enterprise investment scheme where yeah. you get 30% back or 50% back if it's an SEIS. SEIS is like EAS, but for early stage, so up to, up to raising 150K, you can get half your money back as an investor if you've paid enough UK income tax. After three years, you don't pay any capital gains tax. It's an amazing, it's an amazing scheme. It kind of drives a certain type of investment structure. It's not a bad thing. But yeah. it's an amazing scheme for investors and for entrepreneurs. Yeah. And they, that the angels kind of stepped into the breach over the last sort of decade. And there's more institutional money coming in now. There's more structured angel networks. So there's more money out there. Yeah. That if you have an idea, you can raise money. Now, we can get on to <laughs> whether you can raise money depends who you are, what your ethnicity is and what postcode you were born in. Yeah. So it'll be a different conversation. I've done a lot of research on that too. Yeah. But there is a lot of money out there.
1: What's your honest opinion? Because I'm seeing young entrepreneurs these days raising capital and celebrating them raising capital like they've just won the lottery.
0: Yeah, I'm also sure about celebrating. You, know, you know, raising money is not easy, right? So, mm. you know, if you're raising real money from real people, they don't just hand write check willy nilly. Yeah. So, it's a process, and you have to, and it's hard work, and it can take you a year. So, if you do close your financing, then absolutely, yeah, raise a glass. Well, that's yeah. just the beginning. Yeah. hard work hasn't even started absolutely and you get some instances where you know raising so if you're putting no money in really and it's a free option isn't it mm. so the question is what would you do with that option now there, there is a you know there is a kind of a, a track you can get on with especially venture where if you raise a million pounds you know for a quarter of your company yeah then okay that's fine but then they want you know five ten times their money yeah they need to go and raise some more money and yeah. they want they come in at you know five million. so they want yeah. five ten times you get onto a track where you have to keep raising money almost a pre valuation yeah. and because each investor wants it to be a lot bigger yeah so and that, that can be that can be dangerous you need to think very carefully about getting onto that that track i, I i'm a big believer in that there's new new ways of raising finance so there's crowd there's um, mm-hmm. revenue-based financing now a great company called pipe.com, which is turning recurring revenue into a, a tradable asset. Mm. So it doesn't work for a startup. You haven't got any mm. revenue, but yeah. once you've got recurring revenues, the ways in which you can finance your business, mm. you can use your, you know, another one um, will plug into your digital marketing and your actual bank account. Yeah. They can see that they've spent a pound and five pounds has come in. Yeah. So they will continuously fund your marketing yeah. until that curve becomes negative. Mm. Um, there's crowdfunding there's angels there's, there's lots of different ways you can raise finance that doesn't involve institutional finance because institutional finance, which is you know venture capital
1: yeah
0: uh, even even structured angel funds it's a typical type of finance that comes with you know it just comes with some um, obligations and cons- they might have consent rights veto rights they might have some a board seat, some control over your business yeah which is the name of the game. You know, people give you money, they expect to have some kind of governance. So yeah. you've got to make sure that the finance you're looking to raise for your business and for you, for yeah. so you, for example, Dodge, you might struggle with some, you know, 26-year-old who used to work with Goldman Sachs, sitting in your board meetings in a nice tie, mm. um, you know, talking, you know, management speak, you mm. probably end up you know, throwing them out a the window. You know, and British Business Bank did some research, right? And this is something I've got to get in, where <clears throat> I've always said, that, you know, the... Venture capital is the same people raising money from the same people, i.e. the funds that invest yeah. in them, yeah. to invest in the same people. Yeah. It's like a vicious circle. Yeah. I did some research at British Business Bank, and it said that um, something like 0.2% of institutional money goes to people from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds. 0.2. Um, yeah. So essentially, if you, look, if you look at the stats, if you're from a Black, Asian, minority ethnic background, you actually start as many businesses – are yeah. your sort of white counterparts in this yeah. case. You put more money in.
1: Yeah.
0: You put more time in. You're better educated on average, but you fail more often. Your outcomes are invariably worse. And what why is that? Hell? And that is because of two fundamental reasons. One is social capital. You're the one to financial capital. So financial capital is access to money, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, social capital is the softer stuff. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah. Post code. What did your parents do? What How much school did they you go earn? to? Yeah. What school did you go yeah. to? Did you have a career? What did you used to earn? Yeah. Have you got any savings? Yeah. What's your network in terms of personal, financial, professional? Yeah. And that makes a huge difference on your outcomes. So where I liken it to this is that if I, if it was me and I, I was this person, basically, I'm doing a hundred meter race. Yeah. and I'm looking down my lane, my, my uh, people I'm running against, they're all the same physique, same training. We've all got a fair chance, a fair shot. Suddenly, I look down my lane, and they're putting out hurdles.
1: Right. Okay. I'm
0: like, okay. I know there's hurdles. Yeah. I can deal with that. I know what yeah. they are. Let's do this. Yeah. Then they say to me, "Excuse me, Mr. Lenny, could you start twenty meters back? Yeah. Because normally, if you've a ethnic minority background, your journey is longer because yeah. you're coming from a, a, a sort of a, a more difficult, usual social economic starting place. Yeah. So then the the the, the gun goes. I start running. I'm claiming the hurdles. And then I realize there's flipping invisible hurdles <laughs> yeah. and I'm smacking my shins on. And yeah. that's the race that you're running. And that shouldn't be the case. No. And that's the same if you're a white working class lad, right? Is raising this kind yeah. of money. So that, that has to change. And that can be about um, creating funds that actually understand this. It can be about, you know, decentralized finance. If you want to get into crypto. There's, there's lots of ways that it can be changed, but changing social capital um, can be generational. And also, as as you can imagine, that kind of network, social capital, has a huge bearing. Huge, yeah. On your access to financial capital. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of opportunity out there in technology.
1: Yeah.
0: But um, you shouldn't be limited um, to accessing capital mm. just based on you know what you look like, what
1: postcode, absolutely, or what god you believe in. Yeah, absolutely. So just moving on now, Piss. Tell me how you got the opportunity to get into Dragons Den, and what was that? What was that like? So my first
0: foray into tv was um 2011 the secret millionaire so this is on channel four uh, you may remember the program a bit like undercover boss in a way yeah so i went to wolverhampton which is in the midlands um i went to a town and i spent half the program in a young offenders institution basically a prison for, l- for lads yeah. under the age of about under the age about 20 21 and I spent yeah. the other half in in the community helping you know sort of um performing arts charities but in the yeah. program they just made all about the prison so it was all about me being in prison helping young lads yeah. that literally couldn't read and I was like what do you mean that mean they can't read well but no they can't read you may as well right. put you know you may as well, it's like me trying to read Arabic yeah
1: yeah
0: and and that's you know and, and that's why you know they always <laughs> re-offend they can't get a job they can't even fill out a form yeah,
1: yeah.
0: okay so I was in I was in the Wolverhampton and then uh, just slightly digress slightly so one of the lads in there a young black lad, super bright. He did something stupid, got caught, got like 11 years, served six. I said, I'm going to help you. You shouldn't be in here. Uh, he was helping the other lads learn to read. I got him out, trained him as a IT support, uh, in IT support, basically. He then became a contractor, started a few businesses, um, gone back to being a contractor, still in touch with him, helped him, you know, get his first flat and stuff. The kind of stuff that your family would do normally yeah. or, or a yeah. friend. It, people don't have this kind of a network and he texted me last week he's got a new job earning 70 grand a year I said I you're earning days. more than me mate in <laughs> <laughs> terms of income so anyway so, <laughs> cut a long story. anyway so because of that the researchers spotted me I've been a role model for the government as well for young black men and boys and I was spotted by the researcher and they then went to work for the BBC I think and then Dragon's Den this said, you Oh, know, peers let's face it I tick boxes right so yeah you know, where I grew up, my ethnicity, my story, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they approached me, and it didn't happen the first year. And I think Hillary DeVay ended up doing it. And then a year or two later, whenever it was, they approached me again. And they were sort of saying, would you do it? And I was uh, actually, and I'm not making this up, right? I just landed in the Kruger National Park at Ulusaba, which is Richard Branson's yeah. game reserve with Richard Branson. So I'm there. I, I, I donated to his charity. We're going to do some... Um, work out there. We went to Soweto and met on yeah. and they were funding school program. We're going to go on safari, basically. And I had a chat with Sir Richard saying, you know, I've been chased by the BBC. What do you think I should do? You know, it's media, TV, business. You're the man in terms of whoever I can ask about how you put that all together. You're the guy. Yeah. I had this chat over this sort of table on this really like a rocky outcrop in the middle of the bush. And he said to me, you know, you'd be good on it. You should do it, blah, 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 screw it. Just do it. I'm doing a short version here. Yeah, and I said, right, okay, brilliant, thanks. And he said, no, no, no. And he may be ring them back there and then. Did he? And say I'm in. Brilliant. And that's how I got on Dragons Den. It was, it was. You don't apply, but I think I was the first to do tech. So I, I invested in. If you've got kids, lost my name. I think I got five percent for hundred grand. Yeah. And this wow. was um, personalised children's books. So if you've got kids, you might probably know them. And um, they they're doing like tens of millions of revenue now millions of profit google invested in them and they're they're probably going to exit at some valuation and it'd be the first i think real tech deal where i didn't get half a company for 40 grand uh, yeah. it was a sensible deal at the time and it, 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 yeah. it, they grew it and they exited it and that's the thing that's the the, the dragons then you don't often see that you see they invest in a company making yogurt or widgets yeah whatever yeah you never see the exit everyone wants to
1: see the exit and what was the experience like were you filming you know, 10 hours a day, 15 hours a day. Were you getting paid to be on the program? No, so
0: you, you, I think the BBC have to give you like a stipend, which would probably buy you dinner. Um, yeah. And they put you up in a hotel in Manchester. So you don't get paid to do it. Um, you're not, you, don't, you don't contract to invest a certain amount of money either. It's kind yeah. of up to you. I guess yeah. you probably you, know, you expect to invest a certain amount. We look stupid. It's all live so you turn up to the set and they film it and there's, there's no they don't stop the cameras and you see an edit so in the edit you'll see a, a maximum a 12 minute one a full length one and yeah. but they're probably there for like an hour hour and a half depending how interesting it was so and they have to find in that in that edit a story that's interesting something that people are willing to watch so they might embellish it you know pick on the tears or they might have a shot of me frowning to make yeah. it interesting yeah um but it, it is real um there's no you know, obviously when you shake the hand you don't go out back into the green room and hand them a suitcase of cash
1: no.
0: a whole a whole dollar of a, you know uh 20s you do, it's like an angel investment you do due diligence you look at their finances what they said you have a contract and sometimes the deals don't survive that either yeah. because The entrepreneurs are quite cute and they just want to do it for the PR. Yeah. Or the story they told you (laughs) isn't reality. Yeah. Um, and lots of other reasons as well. They get a better offer sometimes. Yeah. So probably when I was doing it, one in three didn't happen. I think probably higher now. I don't know the exact numbers. Mm. Probably higher now. So Dragon's Den is about as real as as interesting as it can make that process on TV. Because you'll know you're in business that most of it isn't that interesting.
1: Absolutely. And and was there many, how many deals did you do in the end?
0: I think i did about nine okay so uh, one probably lose money 50 grand um the other most of the other, two didn't happen in the, in the end other ones um i got my money back basically because yeah. what happens to small businesses when you invest in there comes a point where it's either going to scale up and you scale up and you float in the stock market or you sell it and everyone makes money or it becomes more lifestyle and the founders yeah. don't really want you involved yeah so yeah. you come up with a deal where they, they exit you basically yeah um, basically got my money back. And then you've got this, so in venture capital funds, it's a portfolio approach. So they have normally, usually they're 10 year funds. Mm. So they have normally one or two that are complete flyers. Yeah. So in your portfolio, you had Uber yeah. or you had Robin Hood yeah. or you had whatever it is, you know, um, and that that, that returns your fund. Then you've got a few others that do okay and the rest don't really make any money and some mm. don't make it at all. And Dragon's Den was similar. I've got one hopeful flyer, some that kind of did okay, somewhere got my money back and somewhere yeah. I lost my money. But overall, you've made money. Yeah. And that's how investment works. It's that yeah. strategy. So yeah. if you take money off a fund and they're not that interested in you because you're bumbling along, don't yeah. take it personally yeah. because they're more interested in the, in the flyers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what was it like for you personally, obviously, being on the show, um, everyone's seeing your face on BBC. Did you become a personality overnight? Yeah, you do. It's surreal. It's two sides of that coin. Um,
0: I was a reluctant celebrity. I think you know, I didn't go to the opening of a fridge or an envelope like yeah. everyone else tends to do. Yeah. But it, it was a learning curve. It was a bit of a shock to the system because Secret Millionaire was um, a one-off. So you got noticed or recognised in the street for a couple of weeks. That was kind of it. Yeah, it um, was quite a big program then. But Dragons Den was a different kettle of fish altogether. What was quite interesting is this was like two thousand what five years ago now, and because of last year, because of COVID. Yeah. They couldn't film it. So what they did, they showed reruns. Reruns, yeah. But suddenly, every second week, I'm back on Dragon's Den. <laughs> and it <laughs> was it. like, yeah, until then, people in the streets are going, I know you. Yeah. Do you work in Barclays in Muswell Hill? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> Do our sons play football together? I'd be like, no. And basically, I'd end up telling them. Whereas yeah. after, after the reruns, it was, it's Piers Linny. And yeah. they're pitching me that deal in Starbucks again so yeah. it was that was quite interesting that you it kind of reminded you yeah. um and, the, and the, the two sides of the coin the one is people think they know you um whereas the bbc have created a caricature of you at the end of the day yeah not really yeah. you and i was never the the big dragon sat in the back of a flipping um you know chauffeur driven car um i was yeah. usually, on a, usually on a bike <laughs> to be honest with you yeah. <laughs> um I, I i used to meet journalists i remember one where in um in charlotte street in central london where all the restaurants are yeah. and i come out of this restaurant and there's like a driver there some maybach a big big car yeah. and they show with oh is this your driver and i thought like, no actually <laughs> i just, actually came this morning on my bmx i wanted to have a, you know do a few sheepy tricks on the way and ride down some steps <laughs> and, Keep it like real. so people think they know you but it's not yeah. it's a caricature of you and then yeah. the other side of that is, is that being known it's great in some ways because it opens doors. Yeah. I can reach out to people. It helps me. Yeah. But then the other side of the coin is, is that you can't turn it off.
1: You sound like a, quite a private man.
0: I am, yeah. I, I think I, I use it. It's a funny. one. It's like, it's like a genie in a bottle. So yeah. I've kind of, I've kind of I've learned to live with it, actually. I've now learned, you probably see in my, my content and social media, where if you look at my social media, you'll never see a personal picture. Yeah. even my instagram even, even my partner's instagram actually yeah. there's always someone taking the photo that's me yeah i'm never in front of the camera very rarely yeah. 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 i still want to be there and um, so a lot of mine a lot of my my new business really that is really focused on my interest and i'm kind of leveraging it to do that because you know, it opens doors you know the people know who i am i'm a yeah. hopefully a reason to be sort of a you know i'm sort of trusted in many ways that's what the dragons den allows you to become Is sort of a, a a known entity that people kind of trust to the extent they need to. And what made you want to leave? It's a couple of things. So one is, it was a time commitment. Um, It was, I mean, you're doing about two, two, two week stints full on. Yeah. Just filming, like, you know, 12 hours a day. That was quite full on at the time. I think I had a couple of businesses there that, they you know, they were sort of struggling at the time as well a little bit. So I think they got the heebie-jeebies about that, which is a bit annoying actually. Yeah. Um, and then they were kind of thinking of changing the format and faffing around. And you start to film in kind of March, yeah. I think it was March April, I think it is. Um, by February they still didn't know the timetable, what was happening. Right. Oh, okay. It all kind of fell apart really. And then they talking to some other people, it, it just fell apart. And you know, mm. to be fair, I'm quite glad it did. It, it, it was time to move on. I never wanted to be Piers Lennie, the dragon. Yeah. Because that that's not really me. That profile, that caricature, yeah. served a purpose, but it's not really me. Yeah. I wanted to be Piers Linney, who used to be a dragon. Yeah, I, want, I didn't want to be defined nice. by it. I yeah. want to be sitting there in ten years' time. But that for uh, me, because it not yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And also,
0: I'd love to move that format. It needs updating, man. The yeah, world it does. It what would you be... do? What
1: would you do if you owned the show to update
0: it? I don't know, Dodge. We need to do an online version of it. Let's do it. Yeah, it, it needs. To, it needs. But it does get a lot of traction still. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually. I always say that the people that recognise me the most, with the most the, the sort of frequency are Asian men yeah. and black cab drivers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> black cab drivers, like, all right, mate, all right, mate. <laughs> it's peers, isn't it? <laughs> oh my, oh, no. Like, every single time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually. Yeah. So, in these update. and I know I know, um, Eric, who's doing the show on Channel 4, which in the US is called The Profit, yeah. and here they've called it The Moneymaker. Eric's quite interesting. He's an interesting guy. He's doing that. So they're trying to mix it up on Channel 4. But I kind of think he's had his day. I absolutely 100% think there's a way of moving a format like that online. Got to be careful, though, because they own these formats. When you're on Dragon's Den, you know, people don't know this. Sony owns Dragon's Den. It was Sony and they licensed it to BBC and they built it. And then, yeah, in the US, you've got like Shark Tank and other other places. That's the same license from Sony. So they're in the format. So you've got to you've got to change it slightly. Otherwise, they're going to have a coach load of lawyers turning up to yeah. it, ask you what the hell you're doing.
1: Yeah, I definitely think there's an angle there for sure.
0: Yeah, and it's like it's like the it's like the it's the real time for me. It's the, the the pitching, the crowdfunding, but it's hard to
1: do it all in real time because obviously, even crowdfunding, there's a process. But even though, not even the crowdfunding. If actually you're speak, we're speaking to students and they've got these wonderful idea, I've got no problem investing in that.
0: Yeah, it's different students though. Um, mm. it's a different it's a different thing altogether. That's that is throwing money at a wall. That is mm. like it's five, ten grand here and there. Yeah. You know, and just yeah. Hope they don't spend it on
1: beer. But yeah. they've got some wonderful ideas. I tell you what, the 18 when we employ 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds, they're the ones with the unbelievable ideas. That next yeah, generation coming through.
0: So the the archetype of the entrepreneur who left, you know, your your Sir Allen Sugars. Yeah. The ar- left left school at sixteen and became yeah. a billionaire. That, yeah, that's rare, man. Most rare. people, if you look at all the founders of the, um, the big successful U.S. companies, uh, they've got some kind of history, some yeah. kind of background, some kind of expertise. You know, they're, they're not just sort of woken up after a, a, some stupor at uni mm-hmm. with a wacky idea and become billionaires. Mm-hmm. So I'm not convinced that students are the, the ones to go up. I think it's, it is like Dragon's Den. It is that kind of people have a real business idea. They yeah. actually started a business, actually. <clears throat> Mm. Got some experience, they know where the customer is, and you can kind of get your head around that. Otherwise, mm. it it literally is a lottery. You may have to have people come yeah. on, what color t shirt you're wearing, and spin a wheel and hand them a check yeah. and move on to the next ones. Depends. If you want to give money away, that's fine. If you want mm. to invest mm. in ventures, then some will be very, very young people. But mm. I'm, I'm a bit of a believer in staying in school. Now, yeah. stay in school to do what and for how long you stay mm. in school. I think that's yeah. going to change massively in the future as well because mm. you know I did a four-year degree man, it's just nonsense. My partner, yeah. Nicola, she was a, a model. She went back to university and fair play to her, uh, the uh, in her 30s and did a degree in business and marketing, got first. Yeah, but that she could have done that degree in 18 months.
1: Yeah, I agree, totally agree. And that's why we're building this last year, we've been building this new online events course because there's a massive myth out there, you've got to do an events management degree for three years. Leave university, spend 27,000 pounds on your tuition fees. So, when 100%. I say stay in
0: school, I don't mean literally school or some red brick university. Yeah. I mean, but learn, learn a skill, go and work for people. So, somebody who did your course yeah. and then worked for you yeah. or business like yours for a couple of years, yeah. who then starts an events business, yes. they're far more backable than someone who
1: hasn't even done your course. You think, yeah. I could start an events business. Yeah, yeah, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. Let's moving moving on now, there, Piers. Tell me about your new business that you've set up and why you set it up.
0: So I um, so I've always been a, sort of a champion of small businesses, entrepreneurs. My passion's always been sort of technology. And about two years ago, so I, I um, I got divorced actually, which was the, an interesting period. Expensive. Of time in your life, well, I guess you've got an obligation <laughs> forever, actually. So, spend <laughs> how many years? You, how many years? You're counting. But yeah. Yeah. Expensive. But it wasn't really about that. It was about the fact that I was like, right. What do I had a business um, where we got out of it in a fire sale, so we actually lost probably about one point seven million quid. It was kind of like one of those where we built this business had a fantastic team, but we just ran out of steam. we were too early. The Zoom boom, we would have absolutely flown. We were selling video conferencing and unified communications. Oh wow! You know, we put the communication system in B systems with yeah. Vodafone and people like that, but we just couldn't get the funding. Ran out of cash, and it was sold in a fire sale. But yeah. and it, the business carried on. A lot of the people who work there was my major concern. There was 120 people. And they also were are oh, going to get rid of them all. And it made me laugh. You're yeah. paying them too much. And it made me yeah. laugh because everyone left, most people left eventually, and got jobs they're earning more money.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and what, what some of the members of that team actually are now joining me in my new business, Moblox, which is amazing. Which says something about, I think my, the, the sort of culture we had and my, my leadership skills. That's the two sides of that coin. One is, it's fantastic. They're joining me and earning far less than the jobs they were they're leaving and it's also a huge obligation to actually make sure it works out but to answer your question so there's a, <clears throat> there's a big issue in in the UK in terms of there's an explosion of technology and software and business tools right it's all out there for the taking but small businesses are just incapable and they're not really benefiting from it so pro- productivity efficiency output yeah. income employment it's just lower than it needs to be and the reason for that is because is 10 years ago, someone came and built your server, built your rack, did it all for you, looked after yeah. you, had a support contract, did your backups at the weekends. And that, yeah. was, that was, a, it was a living, they could earn a living. That's gone. Yeah. Cloud yeah. has killed it. So now you're relying yeah. on some YouTube videos and maybe you ask your accountant or your mate who's also got a similar business. So the idea about Moblox is to connect small business owners. I call them owner-led, so it can be startups. Connect them with the right technology of their business.
1: Yeah, brilliant.
0: And in some cases, uh, we're looking at um, networks, platforms, telco, communications. And we're looking at it and saying, look, when I look in the market, at this kind of marketplace, we want to build these services. So you've got a marketplace where we provide you with content and you can make the right decisions. But in some cases, (laughs) the the SMEs, small businesses are served so badly that we're just going to reinvent the wheel. We're reimagining the service, re-engineering it. We're taking these services and we're re-engineering them solely for small business owners, Brilliant. because if you're the big service providers, they do, they do consumer very well at scale. Mm. They do mm. big business very well because the same amount of team and BMWs yeah. look after you, say yeah. to the football, if you're a small business, they have no clue. Yeah. And essentially you're giving consumer support and consumer services yeah. that needs to change. And I liken it to the, the neobanks, you Revolut, your Monzo, your Tide, your yeah. Starlings, they use existing infrastructure, yeah. banking system. He had this awful service customer experience stuck in the 1990s mm. the bank. Mm. And then you got the customers. So we're yeah. basically using a lot of existing infrastructure. We're replacing the, the telcos, the service providers, with Moblox. Yeah. And that's going to be very, very different. A very different experience that's focused on you, the small business owner. And this is completely community-based.
1: You know what I find really odd? A small business is, is a turnover of £50 million pounds or less.
0: Well, there's no brand. So yeah, there's nothing in, in the UK. It's about 5.9, it's eight, 9 um, million small businesses, right? 94% have less than uh, 50 employees, Over, less than about three quarters or 74%, I think it is, have one yeah. employee. They're sole That's traders, right. at 4.3 yeah, yeah. million. So you're a sole yeah. trader, right? You're in business, you think like a yeah. business, but you're not being treated like a business. Yes. All your services are consumer. You can't get any sense out of yeah. anybody. You can't get a VAT voice, you know. It's just, it yeah. just needs to change. And you know, the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, they're the engine room of our economy. They're the ones that are going Absolutely. to help us climb out of this hole that COVID yeah. dropped us into. And they yeah. don't get the support they deserve. And I want to create a, yeah. a brand, a community. A, 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 I want to champion them and create this almost, almost like a union where yeah. we can go yeah, to the yeah, market yeah. and say, hey, "I've got hundred thousand SMEs here." that need laptops. So you, Company X, what are you going to do about it? Otherwise, we're going to go and support Company Y. Yeah, brilliant. Bring it together. You think of the power of small business owners and entrepreneurs that isn't being, they're not being treated, not being served properly. So we have three layers. Stuff we're going to build again, look at the market, that's rubbish. We're going to re-engineer it. Things we're going to resell, but integrate in new ways. So it works better. So better, cheaper, simpler, faster. And things in this marketplace where we're going to provide you with Content. So, for example, if you're an events expert, right? And I know you well. And I might bring you onto a webinar or podcast or whatever, or video. Or I'm I'm getting a van uh, customized. So I might tip up outside your office, and we'll do a video podcast in my van. Yeah, I call a podcast "Man in a Van." Yeah. Um, and then we talk about events. Yeah. So you get to publicize your business. They get to learn a bit about events. And then they go, okay, so if I want to do this kind of event, I should probably get a, a pop up shop yeah. and, and do this. So they've learned something yeah. as opposed to watching YouTube. And yeah, agree. As you know, for my content, I'm very practical. It's not just yeah. sort of little motivational.
1: Piers is fantastic. I really, I really like that.
0: How long have you been working on this for now? Two years. It took Two me 18 years. months, literally, to sign up the uh, service agreements with my my large um, service provider partners. Yeah. It is a real deal. Yeah. I'm going to crowdfund it as well. So I want you? Worry. Worry. I want my members, my community. I want my customers and my shareholders to be the same people. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Just before we finish off, mate, where,
0: where can people get hold of you? So I need all the help I can get. I need some followers on my YouTube channel because I'm putting some videos out. Yep. I'm doing some uh, live Q and a as well. So next one's uh, probably once or twice a week. So look out for that on most platforms, please sign up at moblox.com or follow me on social media as well. Yeah. Uh, if you go to my, my Instagram in bio, it's all on there. And, yep. uh, if you sign up on Moblox, we're going to be sending out sort of updates. We want to build a community. Invite the early, early adopters, really, to yeah. really get involved, help us understand what it is they want in terms of product.
1: Mate Piers, thoroughly enjoyed this, mate. And
0: a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.
1: Yeah, you're I a shall gentleman.
0: See you in my van in
1: Bournemouth. Let's do it. Good man. Go Take on, it easy, mate. Bye. Cheers. Cheers, buddy.